0: Yeah, but they weren't... It's not like you, like, surprised surprised, inseminated them.
1: It's Friday, February the 15th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darich, Dutch News contributing editor and Valentine sceptic, and with me today is my fellow Dutch News contributing editor and chronic imposter syndrome sufferer Molly Quell. Our third regular panellist and Muppet molester, Paul Peters, isn't with us today because apparently he's got some kind of studying gig going on on the side.
0: At least that's what he told us. I'm that's not sure what what I believe him. No, no, I think he's
1: just uh, recovering from his Valentine's Day... Uh, adventures adventures? I don't know
0: I don't know what Paul was up to on Valentine's Day no, Neither no do I so. I was just making that up I, yeah. I
1: was just trying to smear his name Because he's not here to Oh that's true He's not here to defend him himself, himself. Yeah.
0: I heard that he was engaging in a threesome With Steph Block and the furry Brexit monster That is entirely possible And now he's hung over And that's an
1: awful image that's now in my head There so you I'm go
0: Cannot see that <laughs>
1: How was your Valentine's Day, Gordon? Well, it was uh, what my Valentine's Day is usually these days, which is I didn't even get cards from my kids this year. So wow. Just,
0: uh, Savage. Yeah, they, they, they,
1: they're just, well, they're, they're too old for for all that kind of stuff. At, now. The s-
0: at school now, yeah, yeah so you they, don't even they, get it from your kids. Don't even get it from my kids. Oh. No, so
1: nothing. I, I was never really into Valentine's Day anyway because um, Matt was a florist, so she hated Valentine's Day Yeah, because she spent, like, she has to do a 24-hour shift on the of Valentine's Day. Yeah. And then on the day, she had to deal with the kind of customers who only buy flowers once a year. Yeah. So they're just completely... Clueless and obnoxious yeah. in equal measure, and then the people who came in at half past four asking if they had any red roses left. Yeah. So yeah, we we never really did Valentine's Day.
0: I uh, when I was cycling home yesterday, I cycled past the florist shop that's around the corner from my house, and it was there was like no joke a line of like twelve dudes just like buying <laughs> red flowers, yeah, just grabbing the nearest, just grabbing the nearest bunch of something. Yeah. I, however, got really lovely Valentine's Day presents, and we went out for a really nice dinner last night. So. I am. I am. I am, I am spoiled and special. You are. I am.
1: Yeah, and that's lovely. It yeah. is lovely.
0: <laughs> I'm lovely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Gordon, no, Gordon,
0: that. what are you going to say to that? <laughs> I also got red flowers, but I didn't get roses because I don't like roses. So Neil's yep. did a good job getting me a. I'm not sure exactly what they are, some kind of carnation.
1: <laughs> no, they're, they're probably tulips or something, really. They're, not tulips. they're not tulips.
0: Last yes. year for Valentine's Day, though, we each got each other flowers, unbeknownst to the other person, mm-hmm. and we got each other huge bouquets of, like, pink and red tulips. So, like, we had, like, 60 tulips in the house. <laughs> it was madness.
1: That's insane. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the There's a flower store at the end of my street that is currently doing 50 tulips for 10 euros. Yeah. So um, my house is, was full of tulips last week. Yeah, that's a yeah. nice way to... Which is a nice way. way to fill your house. Yeah,
0: it's a nice way to fill your house, yeah, I agree. Yeah.
1: Um, so Paul, as you mentioned, is a Muppet Lester, which leads us on to the OPF of the week, which obviously in his absence, uh, you're going to tell us I'm about I'm going to tell
0: us about I'm very excited about this. This is a great OPF. Yeah. So the OPF of the week was about a photo that was tweeted by Foreign Affairs Minister Steph Block, which if you exist on the internet, you've already <laughs> seen this photo. In the photo, he's posing in his office with an enormous blue and fluffy Muppet lying on the couch wearing a, the sh- t-shirt with the word yeah. Brexit on it's kind it. It's a very
1: undersized t-shirt. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, The photo is part of the government's campaign to warn businesses about the possible side effects of Brexit, but it may surprise people, make them laugh, or start Photoshop on their computers, which is what Paul immediately did. Mm -hmm. The international media was reporting about the Brexit Muppet as well, including articles in the BBC and the New York Times. The Foreign Office speaks of success. By 3 p.m., more than 8,000 businesses did the ministry's online Brexit impact scan. Uh, But there's one question that remains, Gordon. Indeed.
1: Indeed. Who was in the Muppet suit? Indeed. Which minister was it? I think a lot of speculation it might have been Mark Rivetta. I guess he, given that as we'll come on to later, he, he, he he's had a lot to say about Brexit this he's week. He's had a lot to say yeah. about Brexit this week. Um, uh, but
0: it was lounging, so it does make me wonder if it was in fact Cherry Baudet <laughs> since he is so good at lounging across It's a things. gruesome
1: thought, but it was very much a Baudet-esque kind of pose. It is it? a very Baudet I'm, pose. I'm just glad, all I can say is I'm glad the mon- the, the, the monster um, had some clothes on. Thanks. And, unlike Baudet unlike in, some Baudet of his, in his, his holidays. Yeah, so exactly. you know, yeah, his so, the, so, so the monster... Brexit's
0: member of parliament didn't yes. have to
1: be discreetly covered. The monster exhibited more dignity um, and self respect than uh, the, the um, Bidet than Bidet does. The, than the MP for Form for Democracy. Yeah,
0: yes. I mean my dog exhibits more dignity and <laughs> respect, and he spends a lot of time licking his own balls. So that's not that's <laughs> not a hard that's not a high bar to cross.
1: Indeed, yeah. And uh, the, the Muppet's got a name as well, hasn't it? Uh, I... There's a lot of people asking what the name was, and they, the Dutch government actually clarified this. What was the name of the Muppet? Well, they they, they said the Muppet's name was just Brexit. Okay. That's not actually true, because everyone knows in the original story, Brexit is the name of the mad scientist who created the monster. Oh, I see, I see. This week, we'll tell you what the Netherlands is doing to try to break the impasse in Venezuela, why Amsterdam's mayor has had enough of gawking tourists, how Ajax earned praise for a heroic defeat, and how a Dutch businessman's patent scheme was uprooted in Ethiopia. In our discussion, we'll bring you up to date with a long-running lawsuit triggered by the sperm clinic owner who secretly fathered dozens of children. The Netherlands has said it will use the island of Curaçao as a hub for international aid to Venezuela. The South American country has blocked its road borders to stop aid convoys getting through. President Nicolas Maduro claims humanitarian relief is part of an American-led effort to depose him in favour of opposition leader Juan Guaido. A number of countries, including the Netherlands, have severed diplomatic ties with Maduro's government after a deadline to hold free elections expired last month. Foreign Affairs Minister Steph Bloch said Curaçao, which lies 75 kilometres off the Venezuelan coast, would function as a base for essential supplies of food and medicine, though the precise details are still to be worked out. How does a... Curacao feel about all this they're sort of ambivalent I think and they're fair to say they're pretty nervy about it given the island is so close to the Venezuelan border and therefore they're anxious to avoid a confrontation they're also home to uh, a big oil refinery uh, for Venezuelan oil so they're, they're very anxious about the prospect of that being um, uh, taken away from them the Prime Minister, Eugene Ruckenaert, said last week he feared reprisals from Maduro's government, such as closing the refinery. Um, Curacao is also struggling to cope with a flood of Venezuelan refugees to its shores. Wow. Said to be between four and 6,000 uh, Venezuelan refugees on the island, which only has a population of 160,000. So that's kind of like you know half a million refugees coming to the Netherlands, yeah. effectively. Curacao is also one of the countries that was sharply critical of Bloch's comments last summer about multicultural societies and Suriname being a failed state, so they probably haven't forgotten that either.
0: No. It seems really strange to me that the Dutch government can just be like, yo... <laughs> other country, we're going to be using yeah. you to send supplies in whether you like it or not.
1: Yeah, our former colony that we have a sort of tangential, arm's length relationship with. Yeah, and I think that Curacao uh, are a, a bit miffed. I think that they I get the feeling they're kind of biting their tongue on this a bit. Yeah, um, because um, they, they asked for aid um, to help with the refugee crisis because they yeah. really have a refugee crisis, not an imaginary refugee crisis like we have in, in you know, over here. But I mean, it's, it's seriously having to fit, fit that many refugees, in yeah. a small population is really hard. They asked for some help, and the Dutch basically gave them one hundred and thirty-two thousand euros and said, "Now just get on with it." You know, they've kind of discharged our duty, wow. so not giving any practical aid. Whether or not that, so maybe they're looking to have a bit of a quid pro, pro quo here and yeah. use um, uh, this new status they've had as a hub for international aid as a, as a lever to try and get more help uh, to to sort out the refugee crisis. Yeah. So who knows?
0: Meanwhile, back in the Netherlands, Amsterdam's mayor Fenko Halsman has called for changes to the city's red light district, arguing that turning prostitution into a tourist attraction is, quote, humiliating and, quote, unacceptable. There's been growing concern that the number of tourists flocking to the red light district has made it more difficult for prostitutes to work in the area and it's compromised their safety. Unlicensed prostitution remains a problem in the city and has been linked to human trafficking. Elsmouth said Amsterdam's tradition of open prostitution was, quote, increasingly linked to the humiliation of women by large groups of tourists. She plans to draw up a package of measures before the summer to address the red light district's
1: problems. Hasn't there been a report from the city ombudsman on this uh, subject lately?
0: There has, in fact... Ara Zurmont, who spent some time living in the district to get to know the problems better, has spoken to more than 100 locals, police officers, and council officials to draw up his final report after a three-year project. The city ombudsman has identified seven key causes for concern. Those include litter, over-tourism, public nuisance, homelessness, sex work, drugs, and criminal infiltration. In true Dutch fashion, Zorman said, quote, there are no simple solutions to this and efforts need to be made to develop a long-term vision for the area.
1: So there's going to be a lot more talking, but whether there's going to be any action? Committee is
0: working. Committee is, I don't yeah. know. We will see what happens. Uh, Hosman says that she's going to drop some stuff before the uh, summer, although in Zorman's first report, there was a number of, like, short-term changes that he suggested that it seems that the city has not implemented yeah. so it's a little unclear what they're going to do actually
1: yeah and, and this is not a new problem i mean this has been going on for years, years. That, uh, the, the, the tourists have been uh, flocking to the red light district and you now have organized tours of the red yeah. light district it's kind of part of it. It, it does seem a bit weird and mawkish why you'd want to go for a weekend away and just sort of leer at prostitutes in windows
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it is because it is such a thing that the city is so famous for. It becomes this really easy for this tourist destination. Mm. But what you hear from the sex workers is, is that because it's so crowded on the streets and so busy and so gawky and weird that it's difficult for them to actually, like,
1: apply their trade, for, yes. do
0: what they're there for, yeah. and of course they're not getting a cut from these, you know, tours and these other kinds of stuff. It's mm. only like the tour guides and stuff who are making money off of this. So there's some proposal to move the red light district that if they put it in a place that was like less central in the city, it would deter tourists sort of from coming there. And if you broke it up a little bit, mm. that it would be less of a singular area, so it would become less of a. A sort of tourist destination.
1: Sure, but wasn't part of the whole reasoning for having it in this, in right in the center of the city. Was it, it, it was a, it was a safer place yes. to be rather than they're out in some, down some side road that no one ever goes down. Exactly, which could uh, lead to all kinds of abuses. I saw that there was a, a letter from the um, the the youth fractions of a couple of political parties yeah. calling for a whole overhaul. One of the proposals they had was to um, try and uh, restrict uh, illegal prostitution by having a rule that you could only work as a licensed prostitute if you live in the Netherlands for a year, which seemed to me to be completely, um, yeah, completely well, missed the point.
0: Yeah, well, but, the concern, I guess, with that, I mean, there's, a, there's several different problems here, right? Because the concern about the tourist gawking is slightly different than the concern about the human trafficking, which a number of studies have shown that there are still women that are being trafficked mm-hmm. to the Netherlands for the purposes of prostitution. So the youth wing of the party was arguing, well, like, you shouldn't, if you can't move here, and get a license as a prostitute mm. then you it will deter some of this human trafficking now my suspicion with is that is that if you're a person who's going to engage in trafficking human beings then like getting a license for a pro, you know to to perform prostitution mm. is probably not your biggest concern anyway
1: yeah and anyway the, the, that's more to be the problem with unlicensed prostitution which is also a thing in the city yeah. where, and if you have that kind of restriction and actually makes it harder for, for, for prostitutes or sex workers uh, to um, go into the legitimate trade because they're actually barred for the first year Yeah, by which point they they're already deep into the illegal trade. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. So I mean, I'm not, I'm not so sure that I think that the, uh, what the youth wing had to say seemed interesting. But I do have to say that we did a, we discussed the Zorman report on the a couple of podcasts ago, yeah. four or five weeks ago. And there was some, like, there was some stuff in there that seemed to make, like, quite a bit of sense. Apparently there's a number of homeless people who live in the area and that they commit a disproportionate amount of the crime. So if you could get those people housed and perhaps into, like, mental health treatment or rehab centers, mm-hmm. that that would, like, remove some of that stuff. Um, you know, and he also had some suggestions for what you could do with, like, the over-tourism, say, for example, not allowing tour groups to go through the red light district or like instituting some other like sort of um you know litter like if he one of his suggestions was to to increase the fines and the the enforcement of littering right which mm. like isn't doesn't really seem like that big of a thing but it does if there's a bit of a crack down there and sort of like drunk people who are like throwing stuff on the grounds that it's gonna more to the point deter drunk people from being there in the first place yeah
1: so we'll see if uh, anything comes of this yeah. uh, in the, in the months to come
0: yep Speaking of things that are coming up in the months to come, Gordon, Mm. let's talk about Brexit.
1: Yes, there's good Brexit news this week as it emerged that 2,000 jobs have already been created as a result of the UK's impending departure from the European Union bad news is none of them are in Britain. According to the Dutch Foreign Investment Agency, 42 companies or institutions have set up shop in the Netherlands as a result of Brexit, including 18 who've relocated across the North Sea. That includes the 900 highly trained medical specialists working for the European Medicines Agency, which is moving from London to Amsterdam. The NFIA said 250 businesses around the world with a presence in Britain have been in touch about starting up in the Netherlands. They include Japanese investment bank Norinchukin, media company TVT Media and Maritime into your uh, UK PNI.
0: Ritz has some strong opinions about Brexit this week, Gordon, <laughs> right?
1: Yes, the Prime Minister has been sticking the boot in uh, in, in recent days. If you don't know the Dutch expression Heimblatt for the Mondnamen by now, this was a bit of a masterclass.
0: What is the translation of that directly uh, for it the listeners? Mean, it, it, it,
1: it's literally, you don't uh, put a leaf in front of your mouth, so you, you don't you don't hold back. You yeah. Don't, um, yeah. Yeah, you, you say what's on your mind. Which, oh boy, he did. Which he really did, yeah. Um, Ritz has already insisted uh, several times that the agreement between the EU and the UK... Uh, from last November is the best available and is not up for renegotiation. Uh, On Tuesday he went a bit further. On Twitter, first of all, he said that time is running out. The ball is in London's court. Uh, That was following talks with Theresa May. Though he also intriguingly said he supported the resumption of talks in Brussels, which suggests Brexit could yet be delayed. But then he reserved his harshest words uh, in two interviews. One was with El Pais, uh, the Spanish newspaper, where he said Britain would be weakened by leaving the EU. The paper quoted him as saying, it is a waning country compared to two or three years ago. It is neither the US nor the EU. It is too small to appear on the world stage on its own. He also gave an interview with the Financial Times, which he said he was alarmed that Britain appears to be doing nothing at all to prevent itself crashing out of the EU. He said quote, at the moment the ball is rolling towards the Dover Cliffs and we are shouting stop the ball from rolling any further, but nobody is doing anything at the moment, at least not on the UK side. Wow. That's, that's serious. And then I think, I think he accompanied that with a really hard stare, though it doesn't yeah. actually say that no, but it's, yeah. <laughs> in the article. Yeah. Now it is worth saying, of the, although, I mean, Britta has said that uh, he repeated this line that 250 companies are thinking of t- uh, are considering moving to the Netherlands. We don't actually know how far any of those have got uh, towards m- actually making the move. But there have been other reports, of course, that said that Britta um, was being very bullish in saying that Netherlands stands to gain and only Britain will lose yeah. from Brexit. Of course, there have been several reports that say that the Dutch economy will also suffer if there's a hard Brexit and may lose about 1% of GDP. Um, but Gritter's in very, yeah, it, it was in a very uh, combative mood uh, on the subject of Brexit. And it's kind of interesting, people are speculating whether this he's doing this for domestic consumption or as a kind of message to Brexit or to, the, or to the, um, the Brexiteers. I tend to think it's more of a kind of for an international audience, given that he actually gave the interviews to two foreign newspapers. But I think also he's got the, uh, the upcoming provincial elections in the back of his mind a bit here and that he wants to put himself uh, on, on the stage as, uh, as, as an experienced uh, European leader and a world statesman.
0: I, I also think he's just fed up. Like, I think, I think he is he's also just fed, fed up. Fed up, up. It, yeah.
1: yeah, I think Brexit's got to the point now where there there really is just no more, no point in further dialogue because the yeah. British government doesn't want to move and uh, neither does the EU. And yeah. it's really just heading towards a no-deal uh, Brexit. And everyone's, I think, getting a bit anxious about it and getting a bit edgy and leery yeah. because, you know, the, the talks have produced nothing and everyone is a bit, just a bit fed up with it.
0: Are you a bit fed up with it, Gordon?
1: I'm totally fed up with it and have been for some time.
0: I'm, I'm really <laughs> tired of talking about it. I'm yeah, looking forward too. to the day when we don't have to have this discussion anymore. <laughs> I suspect it's never going to come, that we're just going to be doing this podcast forever and talking about Brexit till the end of time. It's kind
1: of Groundhog Brexit, isn't it? Exactly.
0: Dutch schoolchildren, who led a pro-climate demonstration in The Hague last week, say they will press on with their campaign, despite meeting Prime Minister Mark Rutte to discuss the issue. The teenagers, united as Youth for Climate, had said on Sunday that they would not hold a second demonstration this week because of the talks with the ministers. Quote, we want to first talk with Rutte and Wiebers, after which we will decide if and when we are going to go on strike again... The group said on Instagram, the talks between six pupils, the prime minister, and economic affairs minister Eric Wiebes took place on Tuesday evening and lasted around an hour. Rutte said after the meeting that the talks had been quote tough and that the pupils were both quote critical and angry because the Netherlands had not met climate change targets. And they are right in that, the Prime Minister said.
1: But did he actually come up with any more concrete proposals to do anything about climate change?
0: No, but they did make a blue Muppet for Brexit.
1: Yeah, that's true. So that's... Uh, it seems fine. That's fine. Uh, so one of the children going back to the Mali felt?
0: It is not clear. The members of the group Youth for Climate said on Twitter later that although the talks were good, they were not yet satisfied. So we will come up with more action in the near future, they yeah. said.
1: Ajax manager Erik Ten Hag said he was proud of his players after they went down to a 2-1 defeat at home to Real Madrid in the Champions League. Hakim Ziyech looked to have rescued a draw with his low shot in the 75th minute that cancelled out Karim Benzema's opening goal, but substitute Marco Asensio came off the bench to break Ajax's hearts on the eve of Valentine's Day.
0: Very romantic.
1: Yeah. Ten Hag said his team needed to be more consistent and bemoaned the fact that they didn't take more opportunities. The bleak truth for them is that they now need to score twice in the Bernabeu when the teams meet again on March the 5th.
0: And uh, how did they celebrate this goal?
1: Well, Asensio uh, made a gesture that, uh, well, it looked, like, it looked to me like he was trying to hand out parking tickets or bonnets or something, but uh, he said he was trying to spreading something on bread, which is a reference to the Dutch phrase, heilas bindekas, which uh, because makes he has no a Dutch, sense. Which m- makes no sense, no. Uh, but he, he has a Dutch mother, and his grandmother lives in Rotterdam. So, being a uh, Rotterdammer by heritage, he was very keen, uh, he was very happy to have uh, got one over on the Amsterdammers. Okay. Yeah, so the Maybe he should bring there.
0: some actual Pentecost to the field next I time. I think next
1: time he should. He should just, yeah, and bought a little tub or something. Yeah. yeah.
0: And there's, uh, there's some dick lawyer news, no, Gordon. See, Tell uh, me the dick lawyer news. No, so all of a sudden, you're interested in sports. Now I'm interested in sports.
1: Yeah. Dick Advocat was upset with the VAR again this week. There seems to be a a running kind of battle, Dick versus VAR. And in the Ajax game uh, there was a a very controversial video refereeing incident. Uh, They thought they'd taken the lead when Nicholas Taliafico headed in from a free kick, but the VAR team told the referee to disallow the goal because Dusan Tadic was standing marginally offside and uh, interfering with play, uh, much to the consternation of everyone in the stadium and Advokat, who was working as a studio analyst. Um, And that had come after an incident the weekend when Advokat's team FC Utrecht were denied a penalty against PSV Eindhoven uh, by by the referee, even though VAR had recommended a review. Advocat was so incensed he took to talking about himself in the third person. <laughs> he said, quote, The VAR is no friend of Dick Advocat, and that's putting it lightly. I mean... <laughs> Dick oh, Lawyer the, oh, laying down the law.
0: Dick Lawyer lays down the law.
1: The game ended a 2 all draw, but PSV now have a 6-point lead in the Eredivisie Divisie as a result of that, because Ajax lost 1-0 to Heracles.
0: And in a strange story this week, a Dutchman who took out patents on teff flour, a staple part of the Ethiopian diet, has lost his efforts to sue another Dutch company for copyright infringement. Jan Rocheen's company, Ancient Grain, introduced, quote unquote, teff to the Netherlands as a crop after receiving patents for mixing and ripening the flour in 2003. The patents had gone relatively unnoticed until 2014 when the bakery giant Bacles advertised a teff flour mix on its website. Ancient Grain went on to file a case against Bacles, alleging patents. Patent infringement. The case was examined by a three-judge panel in The Hague in November. The verdict, announced this week, rejected Ancient Grains' case, saying no infringement had taken place because, quote, the patents lacked inventiveness. Really? So
1: growing crops is not a particularly inventive or creative uh, way to do business?
0: Turns out, <laughs> both the method to bake bread from the flour and the mixing of different grains require general skills and cannot be considered inventive, according to
1: the ruling. Right. So he got his comeuppance. Basically.
0: He did get his comeuppance, yeah. Will Mr.
1: Wilson be appealing the Verdict.
0: He will not be. The period for any appeal has passed. Uh, quote: As no appeal was made, the verdict is now final. That's according to the Dutch embassy in Ethiopia. The claims to process TEF by the patent holder is null and void in the Netherlands. Ancient Grain was awarded to pay Bockels one hundred and thirty thousand euros in costs. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah.
1: We'll be discussing the bitter harvest of the sperm doctor, whom secretly fathered dozens of children. After this word from our sponsors. Stay up to date with the news about the Netherlands with Dutch News. Dutch News is the country's leading English language news website, bringing you the latest in news, politics, sports and more every day. We cover all of the news about the Netherlands in English for an international audience. You can find Dutch
0: News online at DutchNews.nl or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at DutchNewsNL.
1: There was a breakthrough this week in the long-running fight by dozens of people to find out if they were fathered by the same man. Jan Kabat ran an artificial insemination clinic in the 1980s, but after health inspectors closed the facility in 2009, it emerged that he used his own sperm to inseminate women, in breach of the rules. Kabat died in 2017, just before a court hearing where 22 donor children wanted to force him to undergo a DNA test. His family fought efforts to release his DNA after his death, But this week, the District Court in Rotterdam authorised researchers to take samples from 27 items in his house. At least 47 people are known to have been conceived using carbide sperm. The investigation could turn up dozens more. So, how did he inseminate a bunch of people without them knowing? Well, it was already known he'd routinely lied about the identity of other sperm donors at his clinic. For example, one donor of Surinamese origin is thought to have been the source of around 200 children whose mothers were told he was a Caucasian man. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, The real donor had also so being diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which causes hereditary conditions. That also breached guidelines and said no one single donor should produce more than six offspring through artificial insemination for pretty obvious reasons.
0: Yeah, especially in a country of only 17 million people.
1: Exactly, where everyone lives quite uh, close together. Yeah. In the 1980s, uh, IVF hadn't been devised, so using donor sperm was the only alternative way for women to get pregnant. But until 2004, donors had the absolute right of anonymity, and that's why Carbart was allowed to use his own sperm without it being traced back to him, and that's why the regularities in his practice only came to light uh, much later.
0: So can you explain this like absurdly complicated way that these people figured out that they were related to him or might be related to him.
1: Yeah, well, Le carbot himself, first of all, strenuously denied any wrongdoing right up to his death. But there were obviously clues, and not least, of course, the fact that uh, by the time he died, he was 89 years old, many of uh, the people who claimed to be his children reached middle age, and you could see quite clear physical resemblances uh, between them and to him. Um, Although,
0: I mean, all, lots of Dutch people look yeah, alike. Yeah, lots of saying so. they
1: look the same, that's true indeed. These people, even by those standards, it was pretty clear that uh, there were things they had in common um, when they all got into a room together. Uh, In 2007, the rules changed so that donor clinics were required to have a certificate from the health ministry to practice. Uh, Kabat's clinic in Barendrecht failed the inspection and was forced to close two years later. And at that point, the whispering started of uh, irregular practices. In 2010, the government set up an anonymous DNA data bank so that donor children could then try to track down uh, other people who shared uh, a donor. And at that point, two people whose mothers had been assimilated by Calbat, supposedly with the same man's sperm, turned out to have different fathers. So it was becoming fairly clear that he hadn't been following the guidelines of the rules at all, and had routinely just been lying to women about the source of the sperm that he used. And more recently, one of Kabat's 11 own children, because he was married three times... Uh, so actually raised 11 children, uh, contacted the DNA data bank, Uh, so then there was actually a match for someone who was known to carry his DNA, although that material can be used to research after uh, Kabat himself had died.
0: Okay. This is so complicated.
1: Yeah, indeed. And, of course, what complicated it further was that Kabat refused to cooperate with any kind of investigation, and uh, he gave an interview in 2016 where he just uh, laughed off the allegations, and he literally said, I've dealt with it, I rise above it, and I laugh at every complaint. Uh, At this point, dozens of people had come forward and claimed that uh, he was their biological father. So Um,
0: we know already, I mean, it it is like an established fact that he had inseminated people with his own sperm at this donor bank. Yeah. And that he had violated the rules of not inseminating more than six women with sperm. Yes. So those are like already known. The question is is whether or not he was the father for these 22 children who say that he was.
1: Yes, and uh, what they did eventually was that all the people who came forward, and over, I I think the numbers now got up to 47 in the meantime, who claimed to be his children, they all had their DNA samples taken, and there was DNA samples taken from their mothers, and they did it by jigsaw identification. They compared all the DNA samples, and they identified the DNA strains that didn't come from the mother, saw what these all had in common, and from that they built up a, a virtual DNA profile of him, Now, the the researchers in Nijmegen who did this exercise, they claim... That this is ninety nine point nine 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 percent accurate. So obviously, it's a pretty comprehensive picture when you've got forty sets of DNA right. to work from. Um, and, and they
0: know that all of these people who are alleging that he was his father are biologically related to each other, right? So yeah, it's yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: it's clear they share DNA. Yeah. You know, they, they obviously, fifty you percent know, of their or or thereabouts of their DNA will, will, they will have in common. Obviously, they, different people share different strands of his DNA, yeah. but they've got, there's enough overlap. Yeah, to, to know reason, that they're related. Pretty reasonably sure that, that they're related him, and obviously they would also check them against the DNA of the, the people that were, who were supposed to be their fathers and yeah. discover that uh, they don't they don't have any characteristics. Yeah.
0: So w- why are they in court? Like, What do they want to get out of this?
1: Yeah, obviously first of all that they want the absolute confirmation that right. he really is a biological father, because at the moment it's all been done as I say, by this uh, kind of exercise of piecing together DNA right. pieces so they want it absolutely on black and white as one of them said. Also, the, the, the case was actually launched by two charities, uh, Stichting Kinder and Defence for Children who brought the legal case. They want the court to order Kabat's family to hand over a number of items from his house, including his toothbrush and his shaving kit. So these items have been actually locked away in safes in solicitors' offices while this legal dispute's oh been going on, which so is a real aspect of the case. His widow fought the action, claiming it was a breach of privacy because he donated the sperm before 2004, so um, at the time that sperm donors uh, enjoyed absolute protection uh, by the law as a protection of anonymity. But the court this week uh, found in favour of the family, said that their right to know um, well, who the their father, father was outweighed uh, his, his right to privacy especially yeah. as he, 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 obviously he has since died he died a month before the case was due to come to court last year yeah. which is why they then had to start a new case to, to get the dna samples That's, off his possessions
0: yeah interesting so what has this, like, I mean, have we heard from any of the donor children? Have they talked about, like, what it was like to go through this experience? Uh,
1: yes, a fair few of them have given interviews and have been on television and talked about just the uncertainty of not knowing who your father was. Many of them discovered, only found out in their, when they were into their late 20s or 30s, uh, that their father was not the person who they'd been told. Obviously, they knew that they'd been conceived by artificial insemination, but the records showed a completely different Person. person was their father, and obviously that has all kinds of consequences for potentially if you've inherited any diseases or that yeah. kind of thing. Now one woman, um, Monique Vasana, gave an interview with De Faulskant uh, in 2010, which is interesting. She said that uh, she got an, an anonymous uh, letter, or I think an anonymous email, in fact, one time, which said, uh, quote, I think we might have the same father. Okay. Yeah, and she managed to track down the person who sent the message, even though she'd never had any contact with them ever again. She knew somebody who worked in IT and managed to trace the source uh, the person who'd sent the email, and it turned out to be one of uh, young Kabat's legal children. Okay. So, on the basis of that, she then went to visit Kabat in 2011, confronted him with the news, and she claimed in an interview that he'd confessed, and he, he said that he, he had indeed used his own sperm in his clinic, but he felt like he'd done the world a service because he was a very fit, healthy uh, a well-built man and therefore yeah, he, he was making a positive contribution to the gene pool she had a
0: good uh, she had a good quote <laughs> she had a good line she had to her, a real yes. li- good line yeah
1: she said she, she, she didn't want to diagnose any kind of a psychological disorder but she said quote let's just say he has a lot in common with a certain president of America oh man <laughs> let's not
0: think about whether or not Donald Trump has sperm donated and has 50 kids out there either so this guy sounds like a real piece of work like what is his what's his deal
1: yeah he, he was born in the 1920s he started working in fertility in 1950 50s. At that point, he was a military doctor in Suriname. OK. And on his return, he set up a sperm clinic in Rotterdam's Zaudersieken house. And then in 1973, he bought a, kind of a country estate, a large house at a place called Beidrob, and he set up his own private clinic, which grew into the Netherlands' largest centre for artificial insemination. He said that he'd inseminated 6,000 women, and uh, that had uh, produced up to 40,000 children. Wow. His family said he was, he was very dedicated to his work. He was an absolute workaholic. Um, his son, Andre, said he was never at home. But also said he was a very sociable man whose house always full of people um, and he was always interested in trying to help out the disadvantaged couples who couldn't have children and also single women who wanted to have children. Of course, back in the 70s, early 80s, that was uh, kind of uh, socially frowned upon. and um, Controversial. And he he very much said that if these women have a wish to have children, then why should society stand in their way? On the other hand, colleagues who worked with him at the kids' clinic uh, found that he was uh, not entirely trustworthy. He had a very strong tendency to control everything and to sort of be the owner of all knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that made his staff kind of feel powerless to contradict him. One of his donor children described him as having a, quote, God complex. Interesting. Effectively, so effectively his, his line very much was that because he was a prime specimen of humanity that, that he just spread his seed as widely as possible. He also very much said that he was very dismissive of um, uh, rules and regulations. He felt like he should have a free reign to, you know, if his intentions were good... And, uh, and And benefit to society, then who cared about the fine details, yeah. like the fact that you've you know written down the wrong person's name on a birth certificate?
0: Yeah, of course, yeah. so I mean, how do you feel about this? Do you think that the kids have a right to know like who their biological father is? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it?
1: Because sperm donation in general was always uh, done under condition of anonymity to, so that sperm donors weren't uh, burdened with claims from their children further right. down the line. When you make that choice to donate sperm, and, and honestly, it's often because you, you don't actually want to raise yeah, children, children or have, have any kind of a emotional attachment to them, and that's okay. But on the other hand, the way he behaved and the way he carried on it's not just he donated the sperm anonymously but then actually covered it up yeah didn't leave any kind of record and and now that we know more i think in these days about dna and how many uh, conditions and um, uh, diseases are hereditary you can't have total anonymity i think the point is it should have been traceable who he was because say he had i don't know some kind of uh, hereditary disease in the family which was then passed on to his children if you can't actually go back to the confidential records and find out you know who your biological father is. Yeah. That causes all kinds of complications yeah, down the yeah. line. Yeah. So I think he, I that. think he kind of violated the rules so, to such an extent that the only way for these people to get the kind of peace of mind was for his identity to be revealed.
0: Yeah. Do they have a claim to like I don't know but like his estates or those kinds of things? I mean, is that no? Like I didn't
1: have any kind of legal uh, no. claim to uh, you know, to inherit anything because yeah. you're, you're not, um, you know, although you're biologically the father, you, in 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 a legal sense, you're not.
0: Yeah, interesting. So, yeah. yeah, I think I feel a little more sympathetic towards the kids if what they really just want to know is the answer to this question of whether or not he's their father, as opposed to like whether or not that opens up legal avenues to have to like share the estate, I think, to a yeah, degree. It,
1: it's a really delicate question, isn't it? Anonymity for uh, sperm donors is a, is a really important thing, uh, because otherwise people aren't going to donate. Yeah, they're not going to be willing to do so, it. Yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, he's, he's created such a mess here. Yeah. That this is the only way to clear it up.
0: Yeah, I think that if he hadn't created such a disaster, I'd be quite yeah. sympathetic to the idea that he just deserves to have, you know, if he had just donated within the rules to six people and like, you know, under the terms and conditions that were correct, I think I would be feeling much more sympathetic to him and his family and in allowing them to have, you know, peace after his death. But because he, like, has done so many things that violated the sort of norms and standards and practices, yeah, you and feel like, yeah, maybe these kids have a right to know.
1: I mean, he's, he's gone beyond an anonymity here. He's actually yeah. deceived people. He's, yeah. he's told them that, yeah. that the identity of the biological father is, is different from what it actually is. I mean, you can be anonymous. You can be sperm donor number 11467, yeah. but then with an actual breakdown of what what's in yeah. your DNA, so if anything comes up later in life yeah. uh, later in our children's lives that has an impact on them that can be explained through the dna if you've actually just given a false profile yeah. that can be really damaging for them yeah. so no i think when, it, when when you get when you cross that line especially when you actually run a sperm clinic and you're a trained medical professional there's really no excuse for it yeah yeah you know, I, he, he seemed to think he was above the law
0: yeah yeah i agree with that he did not seem like a
1: great person to me that's all we have for you this week this podcast is a production of dutch news which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating and link to us on social media. My thanks to Molly Quell, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week. We're not thanking Paul. No,
0: what nah, you do that for? Th- th- thanks for the OPPEF, Paul. Thanks, thanks for on. the OPPEF, Paul. Yeah. <laughs>